Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of Commons is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. For 50% off your first box, visit hellofresh.ca slash commons and enter promo code commons when you subscribe. Crohn's and Colitis Canada is taking aim at a hurdle many Canadians with incontinence issues face, accessing washrooms on the go. They've launched the Go Here Washroom app and are asking businesses to sign on and open their washrooms to those in need. And they're calling on the Government of Canada to demonstrate leadership and legislate public washroom access in the Canadians with Disabilities Act. To show your support, sign their petition at action.cronesandcolitis.ca. Welcome to the second Commons Live Show. (laughs) And this is my first. And this is also our first show taped on the West Coast. What? Welcome. I always make the West Side (laughs) sign whenever we say West Coast. I don't know if that's allowed. Uh, So you are going to get the full Canada Land experience. So basically what we're going to do here is exactly what we would do in the studio, just in a tiny room with like weird eggshell stuff on the on the wall. Are we ready to get this show on the road? I'm Hadia Rodrique. And I'm Sandy Garasino. From Canada Land, this is Commons. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over three million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Uh, so as you can see, I'm alone. My two co-hosts, normal co-hosts, are missing. Uh, So Ashley has accepted a wonderful new job that is top secret. Um, So she can't be here, and we wish her well. And then Ryan is sick um, and was told he cannot fly. But never fear. I am joined by Sandy Garasino, a fellow former lawyer and current columnist for the National Observer. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. So today we're going to talk about fascism, racism, and how we fight it with our fists or our words. 
There have been a rise in flyers and posters um, around BC that are espousing anti-immigrant rhetoric and racist websites such as Stormfront, um, a prominent neo-Nazi group. And we're going to be talking with Annie Ohana and Garth Mullins, who are both involved in the fight against racism and oppression in BC in different ways. There are a quarter of a million Canadians living with Crohn's or colitis, which are often hidden, debilitating diseases. Crohn's and Colitis Canada have launched the Go Here washroom app and are asking businesses to sign on and open their washrooms to those who are in need. And they are calling on the Government of Canada to demonstrate leadership and legislate public washroom access in the Canadians with Disabilities Act. To show your support, sign their petition at action.cronesandcolitis.ca. So again, Crohn's is C-R-O-H-N-S. So again, this is really something that benefits everyone. Whenever we have disability measures, they go beyond just affecting those with a disability. They really benefit all Canadians. So now it's time for Is This a Thing, where we bring news items and debate whether or not these are things we should care about or things that we should just let, let slide in the news cycle of the day. So my first thing that I'm going to bring up is the OPSU strike. So for those who don't know, we have the teachers at colleges in Ontario who've been on strike for five weeks. And the opposing side, the colleges, sent a vote. They have this one-time option to send a vote directly to the membership. They were shut down overwhelmingly voted no by about 85%. And now uh, the Liberal government is looking to table back-to-work legislation, something you are familiar with here in British Columbia. So Annie, Annie, Annie has thoughts. <laughs> Annie is a teacher. Do you think this is a thing? Absolutely, it's a thing. Um, what the Liberal government's doing is, is, is harsh, it's, it's unfair, it's, it's in my mind unconstitutional, and it breaks any kind of collective agreement. The members have the right to, you know, the members of those unions have the right to speak out, and there should be a negotiated settlement. They should be brought to the table and discussions had. You know, unions are struggling. Uh, the BCTF just had a huge victory, so we, can, we should use that impetus to actually strengthen the unions across the country and, and not let governments get away with, with this kind of stuff. Now, a question, if you have a stubborn college or stubborn system of colleges that won't come to the table, mm -hmm. is this sort of intervention a way to get them to be at the table? There'd have to be a real close reading of that legislation, <laughs> right? Like, like, what exactly are they saying? Um, and unless it's, and I'm not saying, so again, I, I don't agree with the legislation at all, but there needs to be a clear delineation of what the steps are moving forward. And there are better ways to do it than something that's like zero or 100, right? Yeah. Um, it seems like a zero-sum game, where like there's a winner and there's a loser. Yeah. That's not what the situation should be here. Well, I feel like Annie has just made it a thing. It's, <laughs> it's a thing now. It's, it's a thing. Okay, so we've got the old uh, orange monster criticizing Al Franken, Franken on Twitter and some very suspicious radio silence on Ray Moore. So, do you think it's a thing? Well, I don't think it's a thing because this guy is just batshit crazy, and I expect him to just not do anything normal. So I'm like, of course, of course he spoke out about Franken, ignoring the fact that he's basically a serial molester. And he's going to do something tomorrow and the next day and the next day after that, and as long as he's just 
pushing buttons on his little phone instead of on the nuclear codes, then that's probably better. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's a thing because I'm gonna say that uh, he has now reignited the allegations against him, and suddenly around the world, uh, media channels are playing the footage of the women complainants who are had made accusations against him, and I think. This is opening something up that was kind of tacitly agreed by the media that we were just going to tiptoe around this thing and let Roy Moore do his thing and let Al Franken do his thing and everybody's just going to be quiet about Donald Trump's history. But I think he has just reopened it with a vengeance and now Franken isn't really the news anymore. I know, but they voted him into office anyways. Well, What's that, new? What's new? But but that by that token, nothing that he does matters. Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like the dude just has to be on another planet if he thought this was an appropriate thing to tweet. So I'm just like, well, I, he does nothing that he tweets I is know, appropriate. But I it's know. just like because this is the soft bigotry of low expectations, Sadia. Yeah. Like <laughs> well, I guess we will agree to disagree on whether or not this is a thing. Garth, I believe you brought us a thing. So exciting. I did. I did. I always go somewhere with an extra couple of things, you know. Uh, And this time, Keurigs. That's the thing. You know, those little stupid coffee makers that you put a little pod and it makes one cup. Well, um, earlier this week, um, far right-wing white guys across America woke up a little more irritable Uh, A little more angry because they did not have coffee because they threw their coffee makers out of the window. And they videotaped it and put it on Twitter. And um, the reason they did this is because Keurig pulled their ads from Hannity, which is a Fox show, which was defending Judge Moore, who was uh, getting reported to have assaulted and uh, worse, um, a series of women and girls quite young. And so they were making, I guess, a brave statement in defense of fuck, you know, and uh, and I think it's kind of like it's a. It, I, I think it's a thing. Probably isn't a thing, but it's somehow like there's this beautiful. And this is a Vancouver take. Is a beautiful kind of a collective nature of coffee. We have it together. We do it together. And it is so. It so epitomizes the far right kind of conservative mindset to take that thing and make it this single serving pod coffee automation robot. And they call us snowflakes. Let's call them single-serving pods in return, right? That's what I'm proposing. Maybe we could make this happen, like hashtag single-serving pod. I don't know. Like, we well, could try. They're also... It's a podcast. Oh. oh. The dad jokes are coming out already. I can't believe Also, you already bought the machine. You dropping it out the window is not... Right? Taking any money from you're just gonna have to buy another curry. I just would encourage them to throw their computer out, and then we just wouldn't hear from them anymore. Right? All right, so maybe this is not a thing. I, I don't even know where we are anymore. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I think, so I just I think we coffee, need something maybe? not yeah. to be a thing, and I'm gonna make this not to be a thing because it's just idiocy. Yeah. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks, short on time. So I got a HelloFresh package. I got the package for two, even though I'm just one, so it's double the food. And I was amazed how long it lasted. So I 
was lazy and ordered takeout as well and didn't make my broccoli, um, not my broccoli, my Brussels sprouts meal till a week later. Still good, still fresh. It's called Hello Fresh for a reason. And then I participated in one of those meal trains for my pregnant friend where I had to bring her food. You guys familiar with these? And I forgot my slow cooker in my office, so I didn't have a meal for her. And I was like, I've got the soup. So I made the Caribbean soup, Caribbean confetti soup, brought it to my friend, said, oh, I made this soup for you from scratch, really played it up. She loved the soup. She actually texted me to say her mom and her, she and her mom were having the soup and loved the soup and wanted the recipe. And I really didn't want to tell her that I'd gotten it from like from a box, but I, I fessed up and told her about it. So she's also going to try HelloFresh. So I highly advise that you try HelloFresh. Make your friends happy, make yourself happy. And for 50% off your first box, you can visit hellofresh.ca slash commons and enter promo code commons when you subscribe. A quick question for all of you trailblazing freelancers just like me. If you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you? Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Good. That was the right answer because our friends at FreshBooks who make ridiculously easy to use cloud accounting software for freelancers are the architects behind this question and for good reason. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. And if that's not enough incentive, the FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. Oh, and if you're doing the math, 192 hours works out to two working days per month. I use FreshBooks. In fact, I use FreshBooks to invoice Jesse for this show. And so if you're a freelancer listening to this and you're not using FreshBooks yet, now would be the time to try it. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash commons and enter commons in the how did you hear about us section. Public expressions and movements of hate are on the rise, and there's a need to counter these movements and organize against hate, but activists differ in their approaches to doing so. We are joined by Annie Ohana and Garth Mullins to give their perspective on these issues. We're going to ask each of our gifts, guests to uh, give us a bit of a background about themselves and tell us about your brand of activism. Annie, tell us how you got involved. Tell us about your history, your background, and, and what you've been doing. Hmm. Um, I guess I had activism always in my life just because uh, being someone who's a Sephardic Jew, who has family in the Middle East, uh, you know, being in, in that conflict. Uh, but then as I grew older, actually going to school in the United States and seeing the level of poverty there. And then coming back to Canada, where eventually I found myself as a public school teacher. Now, the BCTF is a social justice union. So at that point in becoming a teacher and getting involved very early in the union, very early in my career in the union movement, uh, really starting to think a lot deeper about what social justice meant and about how we achieve those goals. So it came through my profession, it came through my personal life, and certainly in my public school teaching career where half of it was on strike uh, and, and really being for, bludgeoned by, by a government and, and put down uh, and then turning that around and going, okay, so I'm sick of doing that. I'm sick of being treated like that. How can I teach about it? How can I learn about it? And then how can I affect change? 
And then you went on this last summer after the uh, uh, Charlottesville, the, mm -hmm. the major events of the Charlottesville uh, demonstrations and, of course, the woman who was killed by mm -hmm. the uh, white supremacist there. And you went on and, and uh, were responding uh, in response to an attempted hate rally. You... Mm -hmm did something on your own. Tell us about uh, what you saw and what you did. As an anti-racism educator, as someone who, you know, tries to eat, breathe, and sleep social justice, a big part of that is the action piece. So, and this is not something new. It wasn't that Charlottesville was the first thing ever that happened or that we hadn't, we hadn't those notions of doing something beforehand. But right after Charlottesville, a group of about like seven to 10 people kind of, seven to 10 to be the core, a uh, couple teachers, but also other people in the community just who were activists in their own right, came together and within a week, uh, we planned to hold what was a counter rally and really to, to provide a platform for, voice, for marginalized voices and have their voice be the one that everybody hears, not the voice of hate. And Garth Mullins, tell us, you have a slightly different approach. Uh, tell us about your background and, and what your activism has been. I've been an activist, uh, anti-fascist activist, since I was a kid in this city, uh, way back in the day in the 90s, and uh, in Ottawa, in the U.S., in the U.K., because the far right is really capitalism and colonization's hooded fellow traveler. It just goes everywhere along with this system. It grows on the assumptions that are baked into the way that the economy and politics are run in this country and others. And so I've been involved in the trade union movement. A lot of my activism recently is around uh, trying to be part of the response to the overdose crisis here in the downtown east side. As like a white dude, I feel like a personal responsibility to go you know, make smarten up some of the people that may share my skin color. And say the last big mobilization of the far right in Canada was in the 90s. That was the Heritage Front and a whole bunch of other groups like that out here in Toronto, in Ottawa, Montreal. And it kind of came along with uh, the rise of the Reform Party. And, you know, we've seen another sort of pulse of uh, far right mobilization now with the, the rise of rebel media, with a very racist federal election campaign in 2015, of course, with everything that's happening in the U.S. But it's a global phenomenon. And... Canada is really punching above its weight. We really contribute a great deal to far-right mobilization around the world. So activists here in Canada, we have to obviously uh, educate, uh, reach out, but also when fascists march in our neighborhoods, and they have, right down the street in front of this theater right now, in the last six months, in uniform, we have to stop them. Like you think about the soldiers of Odin who did street patrols here in the downtown east side. Right, and they're like trying to intimidate the most marginalized and vulnerable section of the city. You know, like this is, mm -hmm. this is the center of Canada's overdose crisis here. Mm -hmm. This is the epicenter of where there's going to be in BC probably 2,000 people dead of, of overdose. And it's not because of bad drugs, it's because of bad drug policy. And they're making that connection, right? So the idea of fascism is it doesn't always target the same people, it's got to scapegoat somebody. But um, it takes on different characters, characteristics and different targets during different times and in different places. And so our, our coalitions, our opposition has to be as broad and inclusive. And so fascism really started out 
uh, like before World War II, before the Spanish Civil War, as an anti-communist, anti-unionization effort. And Antifa was born on picket lines that were being attacked by fascists. And so whether people are being um, targeted as workers, as people with disabilities, as people who are drug users, as people of color, as immigrants, refugees, LBGTQ, that's the blueprint. The fascists are making the blueprint for our opposition. Um, our opposition has to be in defense of and composed of as the people who are being targeted by them. We have to have a vision also that looks past capitalism, that explains to the soft potential recruits of fascists that what you're seeing in the housing crisis or declining wages or precarious work or no benefits or whatever, that's not because of your target scapegoat group du jour. That's because capitalism is intended to operate that way. So until we are able to articulate from the left a really good, strong kind of anti-capitalist position, we're always leaving that, that sort of ideological room open for fascist recruitment. They can come in and say, oh, the reason you don't have housing or a job or whatever is because of whatever group. We, we have to actually remove that terrain. So for people who aren't from BC, um, it might be helpful to get some context on hate and racism in BC specifically. What does it look like? What has it looked like? And what does it look like now? Who is it directed against? I mean, it's been here from the start, right? This is, you know, British Columbia. Both words sort of carry a lot of colonial baggage. But in this city right here uh, was founded on uh, pogroms, really. Uh, there was an official white supremacy here by policy. You know, in 1907, a group of people went to hear speakers on um, the threat of Asian immigration in front of City Hall. They got riled up by the speakers, so this is, you know, just a free speech rally in front of City Hall in 1907 uh, with the, all the most important people of the city. And, and this group of largely white folks then went to Chinatown, Chinatown and Japantown and went on a rampage. And, uh, of course, people in, in Japantown stood up and stopped that. Um, but this sort of thing has happened a lot throughout the city, uh, throughout the city's history. There have been periodic, uh, like, racist riots like that. Uh, the KKK had a headquarters here. Um, so the idea of this being new is really false. And I think when we confront that, we have to realize that the resistance that we embody today is also part of a tradition which has involved um, every community around here. And, you know, so that means we got to build coalitions and take the leaderships from the people who are affected worse than first. So recently there was a prophet, Uvic, who said that despite our history of racist groups in BC, that here in Canada... Um, we lack some of the key ingredients um, from chronic unemployment to a history of slavery that makes other countries kind of a tinderbox for Nazi-style movements. Um, so kind of that whole, you know, we're not as bad in Canada uh, argument that you hear sometimes. Do you think that this is true? I mean, I think the far right takes on a different character in every, every generation and every country. And, and even it's a little different out here than maybe it is in central Canada. But... Um, I, I don't think that uh, we have different ingredients. We may not have the same ingredients, certainly have a lot of common ingredients as other countries. There is a mobilized far-right movement that's uh, got the momentum right now, that's growing, and it's growing in a way that I haven't seen in my lifetime and maybe hasn't been seen for a few generations. And I believe it's not reached its high point yet. We are, aren't at the far-right high tide yet, and so... That means I think it'll actually get worse before it gets better. In my experience, a huge number of Canadians, including a lot of Canadians um, in, in the progressive stream, 
have never heard of rebel media. They don't know what it is, and they don't know what we're talking about. Well, do uh, your homework, progressives. you got to know your fucking enemy, you know? Seriously. Uh, if that means reading a little Breitbart and rebel media, then do it. You know, we actually have to know this. We can't just stick among ourselves. We have to see and not be surprised when this sort of stuff emerges. It's not like a hidden planet that's been behind the sun all this time, and it just comes out. We shouldn't be surprised, you know? I want to go back to something you said earlier, Garth. Is there something that's unique about Canadian white supremacy as compared to American white supremacy? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's a good question. I think there's a particularly virulent sort of anti-indigenous strain mm -hmm. to Canadian white supremacy. I think on the coast here, it still continues to have a real anti-Asian flavor to it, too. They continue to trot out all the also regular like anti-Semitic myths and storylines and stuff, the same in the States. But I, I'm noticing there's a real globalization of the far right, that they're making connections and coalitions amongst all the different groups from Canada and the US. Like Rebel Media has a huge amount of audience in the US. And they send their correspondent propagandist people all over the world. You know, I think the, the far right in Canada is still trying to find that sort of maple syrup, politeness, fascism, sweet spot. You know, they're just kind of tuning a little bit. It's like, you know, and, and, and I, I think they still have to do that to, to find that place where it doesn't get offside with like, you know, um, you know, the middle Canada there, but is, is still uh, palatable to the wide audience of the far right. What I would say in terms of look at the dates. I mean, we had indigenous peoples not having the full right to vote until 1960. Right. Uh, we had we had legislation on the books into the 80s and 90s about certain things. Um, you know, South Asians that couldn't vote in 1947 or, or lost the right to vote and then gained it back. Um, any number of things that if you if you compare Canada to America, we are just as bad. Right. Yes. Again, there, there's differences. But but really, we are no better. And, and I think one thing within the education realm is how much we sell this heroic nature of Canada. Right. Oh, World War Two. We came to the rescue and World War One. And something I really like to point out is that counter narrative of what was happening at home. And when you're the SS St. Louis, it's turned away, right? Uh, all, all the things that were happening in the residential schools, everything that was happening at the same time. Um, Garth, you identify as Antifa, uh, as I understand. Uh, yep. Yeah, I'm anti-fascist. That's what that's short for. That's so, what it's. Yeah. That's what it's yeah. short for. <laughs> tell, us, is, tell us about that. Antifa is short for anti-fascist, and it's a label for a phenomenon that's been around for a century. Where there's fascism, uh, people get attacked, and communities need to defend themselves. And that's what anti-fascism is. It's communities saying, we're not going to let people march on the streets. We're not going to let people use free speech even as a cover for organizing the assault and killing of other people. Because before you have the right to free speech, as Joe Strummer once said, you have the right not to be killed. And I think that's really primary, right? Uh, and so I am for free speech, by the way. Just, <laughs> But I, I think that we have to not be fooled, just like in 1907, in front of City Hall, when the Asian Exclusion Act in Van Asian Exclusion League in Vancouver was uh, brewing up this mob to go and trash Japantown and Chinatown. That's what a fascist used free speech for, is a cover uh, for organizing. So Antifa also, as a, as a tactic, as an approach, tries to deny people that platform, to not be fooled by that trick. And if you go and I don't recommend this, on 4chan and watch the discussions amongst people, that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, oh, the left and liberals are so easily confused by our use of the free speech cover. Let's just keep doing that, and they'll fight amongst themselves and get confused and maybe go home to their safe spaces or something. You know. And so we have to 
realize that this is a, a much tougher sort of challenge, but I, I don't see this as like a, a street conflict between two groups of people. You have to build a huge coalition of all the kinds of people who are affected, all the different constituencies, communities, and then you outnumber them 10 to 1, or in the case of the demonstration on August 19th, 1,000 to 1, and then you do deny their platform by just force of numbers, and that's the ultimate victory. It doesn't always get to be that way. In Charlottesville, uh, Antifa defended churches and other places and people from imminent attack by fascists. And so when uh, people say, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's trouble on both sides, where they're really fascists and Antifa, they're both to blame, uh, that's just so much bullshit. You know, and, it, and Trump started that, but then it really kind of caught fire in the mainstream kind of uh, columns of the, of the media landscape in, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's a, a real misread. Antifa is a defensive reaction against a growing imminent fascist threat. So Antifa has gotten a lot of mainstream attention because of highly publicized confrontations with white supremacists, you know, punch a Nazi. Um, what does anti-fascism in Canada look like and what role do physical tactics really play? Um, how large a part of the strategy are they? I, I think it's a, it's a small but necessary strike, just as a, a part of it. Just as like if you have a trade union, you, you only spend like 0.5% of your time ever on strike, but sometimes you have to do it to prove you're serious, you know? Sometimes that's what it comes to. It's, it's kind of like it doesn't even matter whatever your form of protest is, it will never be right. It will never be genteel enough. If your form of protest is effective, people are going to hate it in the sort of mainstream columns of, of Canada anyway. I think in a way, if it almost depends on your civil society. If you have a weakness in your civil society, then people are going to feel that they can't respond, that they can't really feel like, like the government or anybody else them is going to step up for them. So in the, extreme, the more extreme kind of physical actions, there is something to be said for thinking, well, why? Why did they choose that path? We have to use every tool in our toolbox. So if, if Antifa or anti-fascism is a toolbox, that, 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 that physical kind of reaction, hopefully that's a very small minority and it's something that no, I don't think should be advocated for ever. Uh, but at the same time, what else can we do? I would never say that that people who are in that movement um, necessarily want to be known as as you know the, the, the physical ex extreme. I, I don't I don't think that's a fair um, explanation uh, of that movement at all. Um, so you have a hashtag in your Twitter account, which I went to, that says "Armed with Peace." Armed with love. Armed with love. Armed with peace. <laughs> yeah. Like armed that. with love. Um, can you tell me more about yeah. uh, what that means for you? I was on a I was on a local radio station. And uh, they, they kind of surprised me, like, oh, can you take questions? And I was like, oh, okay. And this was like the two days before the rally, something like that. And uh, this person comes on and he goes, what are, you know, you're coming armed, aren't you? Um, and, like, just kind of goes full out about, like, what are you, like, definitely like the whole Antifa violence, right? You're going to be violent. And, and all I said was, no, uh, actually, I'm not. And I got into a little bit about, you know, educator with like 30 seconds. And I go, no, no, I'm coming with something. I'm coming armed with love. I'm not the most genteel of people, so I definitely come armed with something. Um, <laughs> but probably not a weapon. We were talking earlier. I went to the rally, and for Canadians who are listening uh, who aren't in Vancouver, this was 
a phenomenally, incredibly successful rally. How many thousands attended? Uh, over 4,000. It was, it was very, very moving to be there. The day before, I'd been meeting with a, a Muslim girlfriend who was afraid to go because she was afraid that there was going to be physical confrontation. We both talked about this. We were both concerned that because of the things that had happened, that there was going to be violence and that it was going to be exploited by the racist movement to try and and pigeonhole and and label. Uh, the anti-fascist movement as the aggressors and as as violent, um, and I'm wondering if both of you would just talk about that perception and and that po- that worry that the public might have about engaging and participating in these because of because of the violence that's been happening. Where does that come from? And it comes from the Nazis. Mm-hmm. That's where it comes mm-hmm. from. Let me just quickly tell you about my own personal experience. I've never raised a hand or a weapon uh, to anybody, so that's. That's not my style. I support communities organizing for self-defense, but mostly I've been a writer. And maybe half a dozen times I've been assaulted for words that I've written by uh, the far right. I have a couple scars, chin, forehead here from that experience. Uh, In Ottawa, they actually came to my apartment building uh, with petrol bombs ready to burn the apartment, but they couldn't figure out which window was my window, you know? so I was lucky, but I heard about this from someone who was there with them and then sort of like got cold feet and left the movement. And they're very serious about this. And they won't always take the fight to where you have 4,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that I really respect people who are feeling cautious about engaging. It is safe when you have 4,000 people come out. It is safe. When you have you know a group of people who are trying to train themselves to be peacekeepers or marshals or peace bearers or whatever to try and keep the crowd safe that's part of antifa's role too is when you see a bunch of nazis arrive you try to push them out and keep keep the crowd safe i think those are the things that we have to do and in this town one of the most high profile events was the killing of nirmil singh gill who is a sikh temple caretaker this happened in 1998 and five, four or five Nazi skinheads who were organized and part of a movement, part of a group, uh, did this. And our response was that we organized with trade unions and churches and the communities in Surrey and the Sikh communities. And we brought together a big coalition of people. We organized. We took back the streets where this was happening. But we also had to protect ourselves because we knew they were organized too. And so that meant organizing a rally that was safe for people. But it also meant organizing a rally that could repel a force of people who wanted to do that. And, of course, the police and the local officials did treat us like a bit of a threat. But the rally had several thousand people. It was peaceful, and it was the same as um, August the 19th. Because when we have the momentum and we build broadly, we can massively outnumber them because we will always be many, many more. We just have to organize ourselves right. The day of the uh, rally, if you compare it to the American example, in America it seemed the police in Charlottesville and in a couple other areas of that matter didn't do anything. They just stood on the sidelines. They never actively engaged with those people that were marching. I have to say that in Vancouver, that was different because they didn't wait for punches to be thrown. I think it was five people that were actually taken away. And from all the reports that we got and and that uh, some of our peace bearers saw, it was done well before anything got out of hand. So, and we did try to reach out to people that maybe, you know, did you feel violated? You know, is there something that we don't know that we're not understanding? They're like, no, it was fine. So that was, you know, a little bit of credit there, but it's interesting if you really think, well, but how many people actually had that positive experience with police? 
right? Are they always on that side, right? Are they always taking action as they should? I got threats the day of as I'm trying to organize people, the small group as we you know, went to City Hall, and I'm getting things like, uh, I hope you get shot at your own rally. Right, like, like, like straight out threats, and and especially as a public school educator, being told, you know, if this goes any further, you have to tell your admin, you have to tell your school district, like, you know, and and that was really interesting, and the hate I got afterwards as well, kind of on Twitter and Facebook and private messages, things of that nature. So speaking of social media and death threats and being a woman on the internet, always a good time. Um, how do you think social media can be used to confront fascism and white supremacy, and why does it seem that the right seems to be better at using it and organizing on social media? Lots of fascists deny that they're fascists. Don't, they don't all look like the Indiana Jones Nazi stormtrooper person, right? But um, I think that they've developed for 10 years or more the use of social media collectively. Like they're not just as individuals tweeting and saying things. They've, they're like organizing themselves into armies of real people and sock puppet people and bots and doing things uh, collectively. You know, you can, you can see sometimes there's a big pulse of activity that then shuts down at you know, five o'clock or to 11 o'clock and it starts to reveal the time zone where they're all organizing from. And the fact that they're organizing collectively as a movement and the, the left and the middle is more or less individuals and sometimes individuals that are networks of colleagues and common cause and allies, but not in the same, um, in the same way they are, where they really issue instruction manuals and targets and you know, they can say, well, well, we've doxed this person. We figure out their address. Here's their picture. Here's their kids. Now go get them. And that message goes out to uh, you know, thousands of potential far-right activists, and they do that. You know, we, just, we don't have that kind of organization. But do you, I'm wondering if, you, if it's also possible that the people who are really attracted to this movement and who you see, and we see it with the Proud Boys, and we've seen it with some of the other organizations, we're talking about uh, young males. And... You know, that's a pretty narrow group and it's very high energy and it can be very focused. The, the anti-fascist movement and the people who are against racism and who are against uh, these, these uh, very threatening uh, types of movements in society are kind of all over the map, are, are they not? I mean, they're... they're they're in multiple communities and they're different age groups and, and it's very hard to get, to get that kind of cohesion. But at the same time, anti-fascist, anti-racist, whatever, you know, however you choose to define yourself, uh, we have to fight 10 fires all the time. Mm-hmm. And really, the other side just has to fight one. So how can you, right? You're trying to help all these different types of people and literally even just coming here today, being told by several different people, oh, Annie, don't be too political. <laughs> right? Like, so, wait a minute. This is a politics show. Whoops. <laughs> be, yeah, exactly. be boring. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's rather interesting to, to see even how uh, one's own activity can be curtailed, you know, because, oh, no, but take care of yourself, mm-hmm. right? Don't, don't do too much, right? Don't, don't go too far. You know, our, our own democratic impulses are sometimes are a disadvantage to us. Like, have you ever been at a really, like, a left sort of coalition meeting and you spend the first hour and a half debating the rules of how the meeting's going to run and how you vote and stuff? They don't have that problem on the far right. They say, you're going to do it this way. And everyone's like, yes, sir. Yes, we love the strong leader, you know? And, and then, yeah. like, what Annie says is they've got all these advantages baked in all around them, right? They've got... Uh, like the history of colonialism, capitalism, white supremacy, all these things are like 
sort of the common sense wallpaper of the world around us that they just get to rely on. So they've got that whole current kind of going their way, which is probably why they're so earnestly telling us all the time that politically correct snowflake cultural Marxists are actually running the economy and the, you know, the politics and the world and everything like that, which is just a deflection from, from the, the truth of it. You know, it's like you were saying, they always have like, um, you know, like imagine Peter Mansbridge or something like that. He's concluding a, a section on the residential schools. He goes, a dark chapter in Canadian history. And it's, you know, well, that's just ended in the mid-90s. And so that's not just a dark chapter. That's a whole fucking book, right? And then you add all the other chapters we've illuminated. Then you have this, so there's this little half-like thing at the end that's a not quite as dark chapter. So, you know, it's... Part of me, I'm just like this great white north shithole of empire loyalist, <laughs> god damn. But on the other hand, every moment there's resistance. Every of all those Peter Mansbridge's dark chapters of history, there's always, always, always resistance. And sometimes when it doesn't look like it's there, we just haven't figured it out. Or we don't know or we're not listening to the right voices. And that's the real history that we have to recover. And it's like recovering that history and making those links and remembering that that's the tradition that we're rooted in, the, the, the history of resistance to these terrible things. And, and, and that um, maybe is the moment of optimism that I've been searching for and denying everybody half of the night. So that's our show for this week. I'm Hadia Rodrigue. Follow me at drodrigue on Twitter. That's R-O-D-E-R-I. Q-U-E. And I'm Sandy Garosino. You can read me at National Observer and uh, follow me on Twitter at, at Garosino. Thank you to Annie and Garth for joining us. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you to the folks at Organize BC for bringing us to Vancouver and making this show possible. You can give like a woo! You can follow us on Twitter at Canada Land Commons. That's Canada Land C-M-N-S. Check out our website at canadalandshow.com slash commons. And you can email us, and we do respond, at commons at canadalandshow.com. Our Patreon page is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode is produced by Abby Madon. Our music is produced by Nathan Burley. And if you like what we do, please support us. We did it! Yeah!